Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. It's made possible in part by contributions from podcast listeners. Please consider making a contribution by going to the Donate Now tab at mpbonline.org. Thanks for your financial support. Welcome to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Think Radio, where each week we bring you an in-depth conversation with a creative Mississippian. I'm your host, Lauren Rhodes, at the Mississippi Arts Commission, and today I'm talking with MAC Artist Fellowship recipient Ellen Ann Fentress. A lifelong Mississippian born and raised in Greenwood, Ellen Ann is a literary nonfiction writer, journalist, filmmaker, and podcaster. She worked as a newspaper and radio reporter in Mississippi and has also freelanced for national dailies. She currently teaches nonfiction in Mississippi University for Women's Creative Writing MFA program. Her first love is the personal essay, and lucky for us, her debut memoir and essays, The Steps We Take, A Memoir of Southern Reckoning, was just published by University Press of Mississippi. Some of the essays in the book are new, and some were previously published in The New York Times, Oxford American, and The Bitter Southerner. Welcome, Ellen Ann, and um, congrats on your new book and the the fellowship grant. Thank you so much. Both awesome things happening in one year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, well, I like to start at the beginning with you know your creative inspirations from a young age. You grew you grew up in Greenwood in the Delta. What was childhood like for you? Um, it was it was wonderful. My mother grew up on a farm in Sunflower County, and so much of my childhood memories is going over to Sunflower County to their farm on Sunday afternoons and just listening to the grown-ups talk. So I think that's that the you know the grand old Southern tradition of the oral tradition that we grow up here in stories. Eudora Welty said the very a very similar <laughs> thing about listening to grown-ups talk. Um, were you drawn to books and writing at a young age? I was. I was an only child, and so I think you have to look to entertain yourself. And then plus, I was just always fascinated with stories, like hearing the grown-ups talk and then also reading. And so that was good self-entertainment, so I always was. Did you did you write when you were a kid? A little. I have a, my first memory of writing is that I remember one day I was it was I was in second grade and I decided I was going to write a novel. And I remember sitting at the dining room table for myself by myself for maybe all of fifteen minutes and writing this novel and drawing these spacemen in a um, <laughs> in their little satellite that they were going to land. And that was that was how far my novel got. <laughs> <laughs> well, it makes sense. You're you're a creative nonfiction mm-hmm. writer. You're more drawn by the reality um, than fiction. Uh, what drew you to journalism? I think I was looking for a way to write. Yeah. Um, in college, I was a French major. Um, not a lot of future in that, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoyed it. Um, and then in when I was, a, uh, my father always took the Wall Street Journal. And on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, there's always an interesting feature. And one day, when I think when I was a junior in college, the feature was about an Associated Press writer in Washington. And they were saying he wasn't, he wasn't the most, poetic. He wasn't the most brilliant, but he could do it fast. Hmm. And for what it's worth, my father sent it to me in a letter and said, I think you could do that. (laughs) (laughs) And so I think that was just sort of my um, permission to maybe I could explore that. That's a way you could write and get a paycheck for it. So were you a French major then throughout college? And then after you graduated, you 
pursued work as a journalist? Or? I, I did. I did. I didn't have any journalism training, but um, Bill Miner, great Mississippi reporter, you know, he reported on Mississippi for 70 years. Um, he had his uh, alternative weekly, The Capital Reporter, at that time, and I always read it when I was in college. Um, and he had advertised that he was looking for some help. And so I went over there and I got a job with him. And I can't imagine having a better journalism training anyway than just working with him and Jackson. And at that age in my life, getting to, to be around all the progressive people that um, circulated around the reporter and just this world of ideas. At, I mean, in retrospect, that seems like an incredible opportunity at age like 22 or something, did you realize what you were getting into? I, I, no, I yeah. don't think I even knew it existed. I had mm-hmm. always lived, you know, very nice but conservative life and a world of ideas growing up in a green, white middle class in Greenwood and going to Southern Baptist Mississippi College. And so the world of the Capitol Reporter, you know, people would come in, national reporters would come in because Bill was always the go-to for so many national reporters. It was just a different world, and I loved getting exposed to it. Well, you, I mean, you had... A friendship, and you know, Bill Bill Miner was your mentor. Can you talk a little bit about working with him and and what that was like? It was it was amazing. It was mind blowing. You know, the reporter never made a dime, and mm-hmm. <laughs> a lot. You could write stories about all the all the things, the challenges of having this amazing paper that got national recognition and national awards, yet never made a dime. So we had lots of uh, lots of crises caused by that. <laughs> um, there were you know there was never enough people. We were just very bare bones staff, and we were taking over one page at a time for the weekly and the. The press was next door at a printing company, and we would running over one page at a time, and they oh would gosh. roll their eyes at us. And uh, it was always right under the wire where we'd get it in. And then at that time, the um, there had been some vandalism. It was um, hmm. some people that uh, didn't agree with Bill's politics threw a rock through the front window of the reporter, and there was no money to change the window. So, uh, you know, we were there in the winter without any heat, and you could watch your breath blow. Oh, my God. <laughs> So I think the landlord, he was less like proud to house Bill's journalism effort that like really irritated that he was doing work that attracted bricks through the window. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, did you did you feel like you really honed your your writing skills? I mean, were you able to? To be fast. Oh, it was it was wonderful yeah. working with him. Yes, because he would take my he would take my story and he would show me like no no this is what you do and he would he would get it straight. So that was really it. Really was. I mean, if I could have had if I had applied to one of the best journalism schools in the country, uh, I question if I would have gotten as much hands on training mm-hmm. as I did. And you know he would tell me it's uh, it's like it's the writing, but it's also the people. You've yeah. just got to you know you got to get out. You've got to network. You've just got to talk to people. Um, well, I'd I'd like to ask you too about your documentary because you produced and wrote a documentary about Bill Miner called Eyes on Mississippi. I've seen it; it's an amazing documentary. I'm sure a lot of people listening have seen it as well. Um, but from what I understand, you had to teach yourself how to basically create a documentary. I mean, was that's well, right. Yeah. Yes. Yes. You know, Bill had been interested in writing his memoir, and I think he had gone through a couple of attempts with a couple of different people, and I was just the last one on the list that he asked. <laughs> but I could see how long this would take and what it would take to do um, a, a print um, a memoir. And about that time, I was watching something on MPB, and it um, a document like a Ken Burns documentary, and it hit me that... Maybe the way to present this story was in a documentary, mm-hmm. film documentary. 
And at that time, that would have been back, you know, I guess like about 2012, 2013. And um, I asked someone involved in um, video and filmmaking, and she had told me, you know, if you were trying to do this 10 years ago, to just teach yourself and do it, the answer would be absolutely not. You would Hmm. need a quarter million dollars worth of equipment and you couldn't do it. But now if you have a good video camera and a laptop program, yeah, it's possible. You could do it. And got some training and uh, went to a boot camp here by Chandler Griffin, a a Mississippi native who ran the Barefoot Workshops and had a boot camp in Clarksdale, Mississippi with people from all over the world that had come for the boot camp and took it. And then uh, I'm really proud of how we financed it. Um, found, through the Community Foundation for Mississippi, we started the nonprofit Eyes on Mississippi, which still exists for mm-hmm. some other nonprofit projects of telling Mississippi stories. But um, people, I, I just went to people that thought it was so important that Bill's story be captured, and we raised sixty thousand dollars with donations everywhere. I think the biggest donation was five thousand, but I also had five dollar do- donations wow. of people that were devoted to get Bill's Bill's story out. And FYI, on the documentary. Before COVID, I showed it at um, universities and museums across the country, Mm -hmm. but I'm working on getting the streaming rights, and hopefully it's going to be on MPV for too long. Oh, that's amazing. Mm. Oh, that's great news. Um, Well, did you learn anything through the process as, you know, as a writer that maybe contributed to your process writing nonfiction and writing more of your personal experiences, too? Oh, that's a good thought. Um, well, yes, I think also to just to keep things streamlined, yeah. that you just have to stay. Um, there are fast, there's lots of fascinating things to talk about, but you don't have to talk about them all in one piece. And I think the process of writing a film script and just having to stay to the point is a, is a good practice for any writer. Well, and I'm sure there was a lot of research that went into it that maybe didn't make it into the film as well, or hours of interviews. and Yes, and the, one of the m- most um, fascinating things about it and one of the most rewarding to me were the people that I got to interview for the documentary, which who all needed a documentary made on them. <laughs> there was John Doerr, uh, mm. William Winner, Claude Sitton, who ha- was the Southern Bureau of the New York Times at that time, um, Representative, uh, former President of uh, President Pro Tem of the House, Robert Clark, Hank Klibanoff, and uh, Ms. Murley Evers. So every single one of them, uh, they deserve a documentary of yeah. their own. Wow, that's incredible. Um, well, I, I want to switch gears a little bit now and, and talk about your book, which just came out, um, which I, I happen to love. And the title is The Steps We Take, A Memoir of Southern Reckoning. Um, and I'd like to zoom in on that that Southern reckoning piece a little bit because that's kind of that's kind of at the crux of your book. You're reckoning with a lot of different pieces of your own personal and cultural history, identity. Can you talk about some of those things that you reckon with in your memoir? I think it's important to me that it's both a personal and a public story that um, it, for a for a whole life, there's, of course, there's the domestic story and life is one on one with the people you love and just the, your community, right? One on one, but also with the big wider public ways that how, how am I going to fit in in my community and what do I contribute to it? How do I push back from it? So it, w- it was important for me, very important that there was the, the whole story not just one part of it. Mm-hmm. And I mean, a lot of it is your experience as a white Southern woman growing up in, in Mississippi. Um, what 
what made you want to bring all these pieces together in a book? What was the, the through line that you saw through that? I feel like I, I wanted to tell this story, um, but that, that it all belonged as a whole story, not just a part. You know, um, for a while, um, I had had an agent who had seen something I had done that was kind of just a lighthearted story about teaching French at my house. And there's a, the essay is in the book. It was in the originally in the New York Times. Um, and an agent uh, had four agents approach me and I signed with one. But all she wanted instead of the essay collection, this this memoir and essay, all she felt that was commercially viable was the story of teaching French with, mm. with a bunch of other you know, white middle-class women in Jackson. And that just, I mean, we had fun. It was nice, but that wasn't our whole lives, or I certainly didn't want it to be. And, but that, ironically, that's what she felt like was available commercially to do that. And um, worked on it, but it didn't get a buyer. Mm -hmm. And um, I was so relieved when it didn't, actually. And that surprised me Hmm. because I thought I wanted a book. So this is the story I wanted to tell. And I'm just so happy it's come out in this form that it's just it's a whole life. um, Yeah, it's a whole life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, What what drew you to the personal essay? Because you say you love the the form of the personal essay. I do as well. when did you discover that form of writing? Uh, that's an interesting question because because I didn't as a newspaper reporter, you know, which you're writing in the third person, and you are trying to boil everything down to is to as few inches as possible in in a newspaper, and it's the opposite mm-hmm. of creative nonfiction writing, long form writing. And I had to I had to work on that a long time when I first became interested in trying for some long form pieces about how do you flesh it out, and I think just coming into that first in writing long form third person about other people and then getting into that um, it when I first started trying to write something long form I thought maybe I would try to write a novel and I I can't make things up. <laughs> That's what I discovered. I would sit there and it just wasn't working. And one day, this was back in the 90s, I was just so frustrated. This novel wasn't, I was on chapter three and I had been there stalled for so long. And I just wanted to write something almost like playing a piano scale. I started writing a story I knew, which actually the um, a, a version of that's in the book about hmm. daffodils in my family. And um I enjoyed, I wrote it, and I liked it. It was just something I knew already, and I wrote it, and it worked. I liked it. It was published, and that was my discovery of that. I just, I don't need to make things up because I think the truth is wonderful enough, and that's what I like. You know, when I go, when I see a film or a TV show, uh, when I discover that it's actually a true story, for some reason it's more powerful to me Hmm. than to think it's made up. So I think I have some of that, too. Well, thank you. We're going to talk more about that after the break. We're going to take a quick musical break. You're listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Think Radio. I'm Lauren Rhodes, and today I'm talking with writer Ellen Ann Fentress. Hi, I'm Lauren Rhodes. You are listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The Arts Hour is a co-production of the Mississippi Arts Commission and MPB Think Radio. You can also listen to the show on Think Radio every Sunday afternoon at 5. To have access to all Arts Hour interviews, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. When you look
look at your vehicle, think of MPB. Need to get rid of your ride? Donate it by calling 877-MPB-4-CAR. Need to have some work done on your truck? Listen to AutoCorrect Thursdays at 10, Saturdays at 11. An MPB license plate reminds you that MPB is with you wherever you go. Go to your county office and ask for an MPB car tag. MPB and cars, better together. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. You're listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Think Radio. I'm Lauren Rhodes with Mississippi Arts Commission, and today I'm talking with writer Ellen Ann Fentress, whose memoir is called The Steps We Take. Um, so before the break, we were talking about, you know, your love for the personal essay, how you discovered it. Why did you, you know, this book is a memoir and essays, which is sort of, from what I understand, a modern structure for a memoir. Um, it's one of my favorite structures for a memoir, um, where each chapter, you know, can stand on its own, but it's greater than the sum of its parts when it's read together. How did you decide on this structure for, for your memoir? I had a number of essays that had been published that I really liked, and I thought maybe I it's time for me to try for an essay collection mm -hmm. because I looked at them together. And when you look at them together, it was it was just really did kind of make a portrait of a life of so many of the things that I had written about in these previous essays. And so I started collecting the essays that I had done. And I, I think I kind of had a um, just everything in the kitchen sink was in it. And there there I felt like it was all it was so Mississippi oriented. Uh, but then I, I had some some readers and they felt like maybe it would be what everybody liked the best were the ones that were the most personal. Mm -hmm. So I took out some of the ones that were more third-person reported essays and um, added some more to it. The, um, the, the readers had said more personal essays. And so I said, okay, I knew what I wanted to do. I felt like this was starting to be pretty much the life of who I am, which is like just a Southern middle-class white woman. And um, what would complete and intensify that story. And I came up with my life as a volunteer because mm -hmm. that's just something that it's it would show what I was interested in as a person, but even, maybe more importantly, it would show what society around me was interested and in, thought it was appropriate for me to be doing. And so I wrote um, four essays. One's from high school about collecting money for the March of Dimes and how it just became a way I could knock on doors and see a world bigger than my own, even though it wasn't so much of one in Greenwood. Mm -hmm. And uh, <laughs> then one from being in college and being a, in the Baptist Student Union and going to a homeless shelter. But actually, I think I was trying to meet guys because it was the only way I could meet guys. <laughs> uh, bad timing. <laughs> and uh, then, the, then as uh, doing Meals on Wheels with my church with St. Andrew's Church in Jackson mm -hmm. and uh, just living out my life month to month with Meals on Wheels, but also with my life evolving and uh, time passing in that and ending my marriage. Um, and then um, the fourth was coming to the admissions project and realizing instead of doing a project for someone else, why don't I think of what something that I could do and, and take some agency myself? And it was to telling these stories that I... Um, history that I had lived as coming of age during the 70s and during school integration. Well, one thing that, you know, when, you, when someone thinks about volunteering, you know, you think about doing it out of the goodness of, heart, of your heart and helping people, which, of course, you were helping people and you wanted to help people. But what I think you do so brilliantly is, you know, you're not just holding yourself up as like an exemplar of goodness. You kind of pick apart your own motivations. 
um, but also like how society views women. And I think you say, you know, women are expected to do a lot for free. Can you talk a little bit more about how you thought about your own motivations and maybe why you were so drawn to these different kinds of helping? Yes, because I feel like that is a way that is just the script you get as a Southern woman that uh, these are things that people want you to do. And so, okay, you've been given permission to do it, but hey, we all all have our own agendas and, you know, to just look very clear-eyed at what was going on in my head. It wasn't just that out of the goodness of my heart, as you said. There there was an agenda always, but, you know, I think all people, you have you're given the script by society of what you're supposed to do, but everybody has a pushback to it and mm-hmm. figures out how can I make this serve me in some way or another. Yes, it was so, you know the, the, there was some benefit to what I was doing, but there was also some benefit to me. And let's be honest about it. And I think that's so much the way for. Um, particularly for a white Southern woman, kind of a middle-class situation where you have some security, that there's this wiggle room of, of what's what, within the guardrails and all the benefits I'm getting in society. Yeah, I can do this, but I can also benefit me. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think in, in looking at your own, you know, looking at your own motivations, it's also a great standpoint for looking at, you know, society at large and maybe criticizing some of the larger systems um, that are at play there, too, like the, you know, the SEG Academy that you attended. Will you talk about, you know, your experience attending Pillow Academy and... um how you ended up writing that essay? Yes, yes. So um, for for the fourth... Uh, section of volunteering in the memoir. It's about my coming to uh, to just to hold myself accountable. Okay, I don't have to just do volunteer work for other people. That I can have show some agency. And what is something that I could contribute? And I thought, just as a writer and as someone who lived this history, that we don't talk about it enough. This was American history, and one those of us that went to the segregation academies probably don't want to talk about it but at the same time we were also we were when we lived it we were teenagers and mm-hmm. so i mean you don't think about that this is just your school experience you're not thinking i'm living american history no you're just right. trying to make it through ninth grade so um this was something that was important to do and that i could do that could i feel like so i've started this um first i wrote an essay about my experience going to the academy and it was it, it let me say, preface it, that, that I came to this because of um, when Cindy Hyde-Smith was first running for Senate in 2018, there was a story in the Jackson Free Press about how she had gone to an all-white academy, Lawrence County Academy, it's now closed, and they had a photo of, of um, our senator as a cheerleader. And uh, But then some national publications picked it up, and I noticed my reaction that I was surprised that anyone was surprised mm-hmm. because if you were my age and you were a middle class white person, there was a very high likelihood that you went to a school exactly like that. And that's what started my thinking is that, you know, I could we could tell this story because this is this is history. And then I had heard Casey Lehman say it was about this time that there were several stories about prominent 
political, white political people being found that they had been in a blackface photo and having to uh, to explain themselves. And he had laughed and said, why is it everybody says it's not me when they mm-hmm. get caught? He said, you know what I want? I want to see someone caught in one of these situations to say, yes, this is me. And you know what? I'm going to tell you what I was thinking about. And he, he said that as a challenge. And I thought, that's that's exactly what I could do. And so that, that I wrote the story. It was in Bitter Southerner. And it just was a viral reaction to it from so many people that had graduated from academies and from other people that were just interested in this story. And it's not talked about. It's amazing when I go places now how you can just sense what a hot topic it is because mm-hmm. there's been no outlet. And so after my um, story came out, I got the idea of of getting a uh, having a website to collect these stories and Mississippi Humanities gave me a grant to start it and then gave me a grant um, a year later to widen it to be called the Admissions Project which it is now and to tell also stories from public schools just the way that race intersects with schooling in the south well i think do you think when you told your own story it allowed others to feel like they had permission to tell their stories, too, of going to an academy? I think so. I I, I do. And I I think it was... It was just the idea, besides people that felt like I had been troubled by it, yes, there were plenty of people that felt like they had been troubled by this history and um, didn't like to talk about it a lot in the present day, but also just to understand that this is history and that mm-hmm. it was it has worth as something in history. Public school people have told me that, that it was just, it was something, if they had, if it was a bad experience and they have tried to tamp it down. I've had several of the black writers who have um, written for the site. Uh, say that it was just it was a very hard time uh, going into um, integrating a public school and being in this space where no one was particularly happy to see them and there was no no particular support that they had just tried to suppress it and move behind it but actually while it was difficult writing about it it was also a little freeing mm-hmm. so after your essay is when you decided there's so many stories like mine there needs to be a, a place to actually compile them and allow people to share their own stories. Yes, when I saw the feedback and all the feedback I, I received from all over the country, people that had moved from, that had been in the South. And, you know, it's not just in Mississippi. It's all mm-hmm. over the South. Can you talk about some of the, the people who have contributed and um, the process of finding writers mm-hmm. to, to write for mm-hmm. this this project? Well, for the first, uh, when the first, when the site first came out, I, of course, I had to recruit some writers. And, uh, you know, interesting, subconsciously, I knew who they were. So I guess somewhere in the back of my head, I had filed away whenever I heard about uh, someone who's gotten a a high-profile person, but I knew that was in their background, Hmm. that I I knew that. So I reached out, um, had an amazing group of six people who started it, the the novelist Steve Yarborough, um, the woman study professor from Mississippi University for Women, Bridget Smith-Pichelle, Lynn Watkins, who's a judge in Jackson, and um, some of the others, so it was that was good. Now, now that the word is out, you, usually someone will contact me and will sort of brainstorm what I think is getting to be. Now that there, I think there are thirty six stories on the site now. What's fascinating to me is they're all sort of in conversation with each mm-hmm. other, but each one represents a different facet of this history, and it's it's remarkable. There are a lot of apparently there are a lot of facets to it. Yeah. So they'll contact me and we'll kind of talk through, and I'll sense what might be the unique facet that this story offers and encourage them to do that. And usually they write a draft, and I come in and as we talked 
talked about with the documentary script, you kind of have to stay on focus for this, right. you know, because there's a lot to write about, but just to keep it powerful and distilled and keep it moving forward. And so usually we go back and forth at least twice, sometimes three times. And I would have to say only about two people out of 37 have come to me. That I think that's really um remarkable that I have to draw still I have to draw it out yeah mm-hmm. well maybe people think like my experience isn't you know interesting or mine isn't unique in some way because it's their own experience it seems normal um, do you feel like you have to kind of you know tell people no this is actually something that we can look at in a you know look at from an outsider's perspective it is pretty unique. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's some of it. But then some of it is they're just there's such a hesitation because, you know, this isn't like coming to some great realization as a white person in the South that the Civil War was about slavery and it was actually criminal what was going mm-hmm. on instead of what we were fed when I was growing up. And um, nor is it about the Confederate flag, all these things that are 200 years in the past. I think it's, it's easier to come to a new awakening and understanding what was so wrong about it. But this is in your lifetime, and the people that probably put you in the school are still alive. So there's so much hesitation with um, who am I going to hurt with this story. Right. Oh, that's a really great point. Hi, I'm Lauren Rhodes. You are listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The Arts Hour is a co-production of the Mississippi Arts Commission and MPB Think Radio. You can also listen to the show on Think Radio every Sunday afternoon at 5. To have access to all Arts Hour interviews, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. Hi, I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. You're listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Think Radio. I'm Lauren Rhodes at the Mississippi Arts Commission, and I'm talking with journalist and literary nonfiction writer Ellen Ann Fentress. And we're talking about your project, The Admissions Project, which evolved from Academy Stories. And what I I think is so fascinating now with your project is that you include writers who maybe didn't live through integration. Um, They're, you know, Gen Zers. You have Gen Z stories on there. Um, talk about, you know, your your desire to incorporate a variety of stories onto this site. I think that's so important. Yes, we started with the stories from the 70s, people like me that graduated from high school in the 70s. But the point, yes, that was American history and we need to record it. But going forward, it, it explains Mississippi education or Southern education today. Um, and so that's so important. And also it's important because when you talk to young people, um, they don't even have to be Gen Zers. It can be just people that are 10 years younger than I am. They don't understand this history, mm-hmm. even coming out of the academies, because the academies certainly don't tell this story. If you go to the academy websites, I don't know one that talks about this history. The The way they, they all say that uh, they were started for a, the euphemism is a quality education, but... 
if you look at a founding date between something like 1962 and 1970, it's amazing how many towns in the South decided there was a need for a private school with a mm-hmm. quality education between 1962 and 1970. So it's um, they don't tell it, and this is certainly not being taught in the academies. I've had teachers from academies come up to me after presentations and said, you know, I may have heard something about that, but I wasn't sure. Wow. And so, yes. And then I've certainly I've had students that come up. Um, I know uh, Doug Blackman, who is doing a, um, a documentary of, uh, based on Leland, 50 years after school integration in Leland, had mentioned to me that when he was interviewing Academy alums in the Delta, that he was seeing that, that people that were old enough in the 70s to hear the conversations and know exactly what it was about. And I certainly knew exactly what it was about because I was, um, uh, it was like eighth grade. Mm-hmm. But um, it, but they don't even know what it was about because it just hasn't been talked about and it's not in the official story of any of these schools. Um, something interesting that's happened in the last few weeks, uh, someone who had come to me after hearing a presentation had gone to what is Briarcrest Christian in Memphis? And she came to me. She had graduated in the 80s, and she said her school was one, and she'd never thought about it. But hmm. hearing about the timeline, she said it most certainly was. And so she wrote a story for the site a few years ago, and it's there. This turns out to be the school where uh, the Tuies and Michael Orr, where it was based from the blind right. side. And that's not, once again, it's just un- this whole history is so under the radar. And that is the school this, that has that part of the history of the school was not part of the big story. Do you sense that any of the academies are making a move to at least approach this history? I don't. I don't. But, you know, of course, there are a few that remain all white, but most of the, the larger ones now have um, a, a very small minority enrollment. Uh, but I, I don't sense that. It's been um, interesting having some um, essays contributed by black alums of the academies in mm-hmm. later years. It's interesting. And they all, while they, maybe they're appreciative of the academic education they got, they also felt like there was in the culture, there was so much more to go. It's just not a matter of having a few, uh, a small black enrollment, and that makes everything okay. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, and you also have included public school stories, too, which, you know, on its face, be like, well, it's a different story, but it's all connected because it's all the education system. Um, Have some of those public, tell me about the public school stories that you've also included in that. I've learned so much from that that I didn't realize. As someone educated in an um, all-white academy, I would just look over at the public school and think, oh, well, they're, they're doing the right thing. That's the right Way. But then the more I learned about it, the more I understood how complex the public school story was. That so many, you know, there were success stories. Let's, let me say that. First, I'm not saying there weren't. Yeah. There were success stories. But there were also complications that in so many towns, if there was, once the, the town had to, once the courts had insisted and it became um, inevitable, what they did was simply close down the longtime black school with all of its traditions and wonderful teachers. And 
and everybody went to the white school. And so, so many black traditions were lost in that whole history and pride. Mm. And then when people came into the white school, there really wasn't any support for the, the new teachers and the new students. And that was hard. It was yeah. just in a, in a space where there was no no effort, a constructive effort to incorporate and become something new. They just were lost in a white space. Well, with this, the project, um, admissions project, what are you hoping to achieve? What would be the ideal outcome or success in your mind from this project? Of course, you know, I'm not, I have no expertise in educational policy, but I do know, what I do know is that we have to tell these stories, that nothing is going to happen until there is an understanding of where we came from and the way this history affects how Mississippi schools are today. If there's like, if there's less of a will to fully finance public education, this is a lot of the reason why, because there's so many towns in Mississippi where there is a private academy that educates most of the white children in town and the public school, which educates most of the black students in town, which is essentially pre-Brown. Mm-hmm. And as, as long as that's the the story behind it, I think we have to tell those stories. Right. Um, but also, I want to tell success stories, places that it, it, it uh, in, uh, it's working. Interesting about these Mississippi miracle stories about the reading scores. And um, I think, of course, you know, the office holders are going to say, well, it's all about that the, um, the it, you know, our last administrations did this third grade reading gate. But some of the public school funding advocates are saying this is, it is just you can track the, the improvement in scores with improvement in funding public education. It tracks exactly over hmm. the last 30 years. So um, this is all part of the story, and, and we have to get these stories out. Well, it's it's such important work that you're doing, and I, I know we've detoured from your memoir a little bit, but I think the two projects are so intertwined, and you you know you were working on them simultaneously. What, what was that like trying to f- finish a book but also – having this major undertaking um, in the admissions project. Oh, so it's, it's a juggling act. And yeah. um, basically, anyone out there who would like to contribute to the admissions project is a nonprofit fund with the Community Foundation for Mississippi. Um, it's the Eyes on Mississippi Fund. And that is, that's the funding vehicle for nonprofit for, and for tax-deductible donations. But for so much of the time, um, the Humanities Grant uh, expired a long time ago. So it's just running along basically on a pro bono basis. So sometimes that, that gets short shift. I would love also yeah. anyone who would like to help with some editing and some other things. I have a couple of great people that help me pro bono, basically. Um, and uh, so... And of course people who want to contribute their stories too. Absolutely, yes, yes. And an exciting thing is I've been I've been surprised how few stories from out of state I've received because there were academies in 11 southern states mm-hmm. and I just assumed I would get more. Of course then I'm I've also assumed that I wouldn't have to pull 35 out of 37 or so <laughs> stories out of people, but um I haven't. And then I recently had an essay in Salvation South that is sort of an update on the project and I had mentioned in or how I'd never received any stories from Louisiana, South Carolina, Alabama, or Georgia, and I've gotten some. So, oh, good. Yes, yes. One just went up, actually, from North Carolina from an academy there, and then there's one that's uh, imminent from one in Georgia. Well, and it's also, I mean, an archive for researchers who are looking to, you know, have firsthand accounts. I'm sure it's 
Very and, valuable resource for them as well. Yes, yes. You were asking one of the goals, and I said to, to, to capture this story because it's American history, and it's being used. That's That's been very gratifying. There Three academic books have come out in the last, I believe, 12 months that are quoting the um, primary documents on the site, these stories. One just came out in a, a few weeks ago called The Injustice of Place that quotes three of the essays on the site. And um, yes, and then there are two other books out that quote quote the site. So, That's you know, with the doc, with this history now available that wasn't, I just, it almost like you could see that it's hopefully it's going to sort of revise and reform the story of this history because this wasn't available before. Mm-hmm. Well, working on these stories, did this affect how it? you told your own personal, I mean, beyond your education, but did this kind of dedication to truth-telling and authenticity and honesty, did it affect how you were writing other essays in your in your book? I think so. And, you know, I feel like we so many people talk about how Mississippi is not an outlier state. It's just an easy read of America. With, mm-hmm. so you can see things here, the good, the bad, everything. And I feel like growing up in Greenwood, it was sort of the same way because here was the place where Emmett Till, uh, right outside of Greenwood's where Emmett Till happened, and I'd never heard of it. And then um, Brian, uh, Byron Delia Beckwith was lived in Greenwood. That was the um, uh, Megar Evers assassin. So so much was right there. It's almost like I had this easy read of how you, truth can be suppressed yeah. and that the importance of truth telling. And I think it sort of it, it came into my private life too, and the the way that I like to do a personal essay because personal essays, if they're worth anything, they're truthful. Right. Mm. Um, have you now that your book's been out in the world for a few weeks? Has, has it been a month yet? I'm not sure. August um, 10th. August 10th mm-hmm. will be a month. So, um, have you had any reactions from readers? And I guess you know people have read some of your essays before that are included in the book. Have you had any reactions yet? I have. It's just been so gratifying. Um, some uh, a lot of people uh, have have liked different ones. It's interesting, the the people that know me and that have lived some of these personal stories with me, I think they really gravitate to the personal. And then some of the national reaction is more, they see it in more of the big political terms mm. of this is a story of, of, of like a, a white woman, a middle-aged white woman telling about the impact of segregation on her life. Mm. And they're both true, both, yeah. both of them. And that's, that's what I really wanted. I wanted it to be a whole life because because no life, I don't think you can tell a life in just one of those ways. It's a full, the full life is both of those categories. Well, and I think that's the beautiful thing about memoir is when you're telling one very specific personal individual story, so many people can see themselves in it than when you're trying to look at things on a more general level, too. Absolutely, yes. And I, I, I talk about this, and, you know, we, we teach in the um, MFA program in Mississippi, uh, Mississippi University for Women, that the the curious thing about writing an essay and making it personal is the more personal and unique the story you're telling, just signature you down to every little detail, actually, the more universal it becomes, mm-hmm. because people can see this is a specific life, and I have a specific life, and yeah, the deeper you go, uh, I was reading one about uh, going on this trip to Paris and all the all the crazy loopy fantasies that I pinned on this romantic trip to Paris and uh, someone had said it but you know that is universal because I went somewhere else but I did the same thing yeah. so that's gratifying 
Well, that is, I do love that essay mm-hmm. when you go to Paris. Mm-hmm. Um, your essays about anything French are, mm-hmm. are very enlightened. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so I, I do hope everyone orders a copy of this book, um, The Steps We Take, A Memoir of Southern Reckoning. This might be a little unfair to ask since you just published a book and that's an extremely huge undertaking, mm-hmm. but what are you working on these days? Well, I think in the future, I think definitely there needs to be a book that collects all of the um, admissions project stories, all these first-person stories, mm-hmm. and so I can see that. But I think there's also could be a second book there of more of a book sort of like um, The Warmth of Other Suns that hmm. tra- tells the whole narrative story maybe through the lives of four or five people. Um, that 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 wove through this history. Oh, that's a fascinating mm-hmm. idea. So I've thought about that, and then I've just got a couple of per- more personal essays right now in the works. The cover of my book is Dusty Bonje, incredible um, expressionist artist on the coast, um, who died in the. She was born, I think, nineteen oh three, and died nineteen ninety three, and. I'm fascinated with her story and what her story says about having a creative life as a woman in Mississippi and the choices she made is kind of like maybe some kind of parallel with Virginia Woolf in a room Mm. of her own. So that's something else I'm working on right now. I'm so glad you mentioned that cover. How did you um, stumble upon that that image? Oh, I love it. It's in the Mississippi Museum of Art, and they had a Dusty Bonjay show a few summers ago. And when I saw it, I was so struck. What I love about it is... The abstract expressionist quality, it's not just like a photorealism. It's like there's so much painterly, or it's her own view of what she's doing. And also that side eye. you got to love the yeah. side eye. It's her self-portrait called The Balcony from 1943. And when um, University Press asked me what would be my ideal cover, I said, oh, that painting. And the Dusty Bonjay Foundation in Biloxi graciously let us use the, the cover, the, the piece of art. And um, and they said they would like me to tell her story, which I do with, with honor, with pleasure. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's an incredible mm-hmm. and beautiful coincidence, too. Um, now that you've, you know, that you have this book in the world, uh, I, you know, I'm just very, I'm very pleased that I, that I know you and that I can watch all of the things you're doing out in the world with the admissions project and the steps we take. Um, where can people find out more about you and your work? I have a writer's uh, site, ellenannfentress.com, and the admissions project. Okay, put an S on each of these nouns, admissionsprojects.com. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, Ellen Ann, and thank you everyone for listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour. Thanks for listening to this MPB Think Radio podcast. MPB depends on support from listeners, so if you can, please contribute today at mpbonline.org. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app.